This is an ABC podcast. I think we're in a contest, not with China per se, but a contest with autocrats, autocratic governments around the world, as whether or not democracies can compete with them in the rapidly changing 21st century. Joe Biden has an ambition that's markedly different from that of his predecessor. Rather than admonishing or belittling old allies, he's planning to pitch a new tent and invite them all in. He wants to build a new global alliance. I think how we act and whether we pull together as democracies is going to uh, determine whether our grandkids look back 15 years from now and say, did they step up? Are democracies as relevant and as powerful as they have been? President Biden flagged his desire to establish a new democratic bloc in the lead-up to the last US election, and he broached it again earlier this year during the G7 meeting in the UK. But is Biden's proposal achievable in a 21st century marked by heightened geo-economic interdependency? Or is it simply a nostalgic yearning for the past? And if such an alliance could be formed, is the United States really up to the job of leading it? Hello, welcome to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Certainly Joe Biden is thinking about how he can make Americans feel better about themselves after four disruptive years of Donald Trump. But it's also important to remember that Joe Biden deeply believes in democracy. This is what he's been talking about for most of his political career since he was a senator in the United States many, many, many decades ago. Thomas Graham, a distinguished fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States. So this is a principled issue for him. He does believe that we are in a period where there is a conflict between democracy and autocracy. He believes that the United States has a responsibility to lead on that issue, as the United States has for the past 70 or so years. And so this is an important matter, and it's more than simply making people feel good. It is Joe Biden returning to what he thinks is is the mainstream of American diplomacy, and to the mainstream of America's mission on the global stage. And Joe Biden certainly has an enthusiastic supporter in Jonas Perello Plesner, who runs a progressive think tank in the Danish capital, Copenhagen. The Alliance of Democracies Foundation is a non-profit foundation. It was founded in 2017 by former NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen, with basically the aim to sort of bolster the spine of democracies, make them cooperate more together, and also push back on authoritarianism. It was also created, Jonas Perello plesner concedes, at the height of Western concerns about the foreign policy of former President Donald Trump. Ladies and gentlemen, the pandemic has changed more than just the ways we meet. It has also highlighted the power of cooperation and solidarity in our communities, but also globally. Every year, the Alliance of Democracies Foundation hosts its own global summit. In fact, Joe Biden opened the first back in 2018. Not surprisingly, they're supportive of the president's aim and envision a robust coalition with the sort of one-in-all-in approach followed, in theory, by the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. 
The idea would be to do the same as NATO's Article 5 does, which is a sort of military alliance, of course, and has one for all clause of if one ally is attacked, it will be protected by all other members. And to do the same in the economic field among democracies of saying when we see Australian as a good example, being subjected to Chinese trade sanctions based on on a sort of value fights that China wants Australia to be more silent on its human rights record, on its treatment of Uyghurs, and basically want Australia to sort of quell its free press inside the country on China. There you could actually then have all the other democracies that had signed up to this, invoke this Article 5 on the economic area and say, we will make counter sanctions in order to protect Australia. The aim, of course, shouldn't be a sort of Trumpian world full of, of terrorism and sanctions, but rather be that since this would represent, if it were all the world's democracies, it would represent around 60% of the world's GDP. And that would, of course, be sort of massive deterrent effect of basically saying if China doesn't remove its trade sanctions, then all the world's democracies within the next two months would enact countervailing sanctions. So we often see in these value battles, in particular with China, that they use economic vulnerability to pressure us. And if we are alone, we fall each on our own. But if we join forces, and that would really be the idea behind this Article 5 among democracies, we could counter that economic coercion. It's a heartfelt and very attractive idea if you're concerned about the increasing aggression coming from Moscow, and more particularly from Beijing. But there's a big hitch, says Susanna Patton from the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney. Democracies should work more with other democracies to strengthen their resilience and to address common challenges that we all face, like disinformation or challenges to online freedom. But likewise, I think almost everybody agrees that at times democracies will need to work with non-democracies. So the debate is really about the balance. To what extent should democratic values be a guiding principle for Australian or for US foreign policy. And if they dominate, says Dr Patton, the end result could potentially frustrate and possibly even alienate Australia and America's current allies in the Indo-Pacific. Well, the idea that President Biden has spoken about is that the US is engaged in systems competition with China. So the idea being that as he's put it, the world is at an inflection point between democracy and autocracy. And in many ways, I think for some countries listening to that, that does evoke memories of the Cold War with the ideological contest between the US and the Soviet Union. But of course, the world now is very different to what it was during the Cold War. And indeed, US-China competition is very different from the competition between the US and the Soviet Union. The region where competition is most intense today is Asia or the Indo-Pacific. And that's a region of very diverse political systems without the kind of ideologically coherent core grouping that Western Europe provided during the Cold War. And it's also not so accurate to describe the US and China as being in a competition of systems because, in fact, they're integrated within a single global economic system with considerable interdependency. So that means countries will need to continue to balance important relationships with both the US, China and indeed with other countries rather than picking sides or being in one grouping or the other as they were during the Cold War. 
that means that the nature of competition today is very different from what it was in the past. And could Biden's value-based approach then, could it actually inadvertently reinforce rather than challenge ideological and economic divisions in the region? I think there is a risk that the narrative about democratic values or a competition between democracy and autocracy does reinforce some sense of division in the region because the idea of an ideological division between countries, I think, evokes the idea that rifts are deeper and more permanent. And I think that is an off-putting idea to some countries, even countries that are themselves democracies, for example, like Indonesia or Malaysia, could be alarmed by the type of language that suggests that they have to make a choice between one side or the other. You talk about and you write about what you call hedging countries and their importance in the region. Just explain to us what you mean by that term. So the idea of hedging is that countries will maximise their advantage by working with both the US and China and exploiting the kind of geopolitical room for manoeuvre that they have. So they won't ever choose one side or the other, but rather they'll continue, for example, to take advantage of economic ties with China while also doubling down on their security ties with the US so that they're not putting all their eggs in one basket. Those key hedging countries in Southeast Asia in particular are very important in terms of alignment dynamics because there are a few countries that are willing to, as it were, overtly balance against China. And if we think about US or Australian policy objectives in the region, for example, in the South China Sea, which might be to push back on China's activities there, who are the countries that we're going to need to work with? Vietnam and the Philippines are two of the most important countries in that dynamic. One is a one-party communist state and the other is an illiberal democracy. So when we sit down to plan our foreign policy towards Asia, we need to bear that in mind. So is it possible that the idea of an alliance of, of democracies might actually turn those countries away from Australia and from the United States? I think it's possible that that idea doesn't provide a kind of competitive narrative to encourage them to work more with the US and and more with us. Because for many countries in the region, the real source of China's appeal or attractiveness is not its ideological system. I don't think there are many countries in the region, if any, that want to really emulate China's political system as such but they do see advantages in the economic opportunities that working with China provides. So we need to understand that if we want to compete for influence. The US needs to understand that if it wants to compete for influence. And it's a common criticism of US engagement in Asia that it has lacked a strong economic narrative since it withdrew from the TPP. And the idea of doubling down on an ideal competition without the kind of economic component to go along with it, I think risks leaving the US in a less competitive position than it would otherwise be. And the TTP being the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was an economic grouping of countries. 
Yeah, that's right. So China has gained a lot of influence in the region through initiatives like the Belt and Road, which have seen it invest a lot in regional infrastructure. It's the largest trading partner for many countries in Asia. But since the US withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement following Donald Trump's election, the US hasn't really had a strong economic counter-narrative. The Build Back Better World initiative that was announced by President Biden and other leaders at the G7 is a positive step to try and respond to the Belt and Road Initiative, but the question will be in the delivery. So talking about principles and norms like the rule of law, non-coercion, transparency, these are principles that provide a positive platform for cooperation with the broadest possible range of countries. Dr Susanna Patton from the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. Let's get a perspective now from Europe. Hans Kundanani is from the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London, more commonly known as Chatham House. People in the Biden administration would like to think that democracies all share the same interests, particularly in relation to China, but it's just much, much more complex than that. And you see that particularly in terms of the difficulties that the Biden administration is having getting Europeans to buy into this kind of transatlantic approach to China. The Europeans, led by Merkel, who the Biden administration sees very much as as an ally, they, they went ahead and agreed an investment agreement with China before Biden had even come into the White House, which many of the people in the Biden administration were quite annoyed about. So, you know, even getting Europeans and and Americans together around a transatlantic approach to China is going to be really challenging, let alone when it comes to other countries around the world that are sort of crucial to this, like India, for example. So I think it's going to be very difficult. I think the Biden administration recognises some of those difficulties, or is beginning to recognise some of those difficulties, which I think is is why I'm sceptical that this will eventually turn into a sort of formal alliance. But what they certainly will do is to try to get democracies around the world to work together more closely. Maybe one other thing to add there is, you know, even if you look at, say, NATO now, there's issues around, you know, whether some of the states within NATO are still democracies. I'm thinking particularly of, of Hungary. And so it's not even clear that, you know, the countries within the alliance, which already exists, i.e. NATO, are actually, you know, on the same page in relation to questions around democracy, let alone when it gets to countries that are outside of that formal alliance. And that's an important point, isn't it? Because you have democratic countries like Hungary, like Poland, which aren't acting like liberal democracies. And it seems that the Biden proposal, or idea at least, is very much framed around the idea of pulling together liberal democracies, isn't it? Well, that's a really important point, because you're absolutely right that democracy and liberal democracy are two slightly different things. And in the last decade or so, there's been a lot of discussion around whether liberalism and democracy necessarily go together. 
and you know that you can have illiberal democracies as well as liberal democracies and, and Viktor Orban the Hungarian leader has has framed Hungary in this way that it's a democracy but an illiberal democracy and that gets to the sort of complexity around this you know we all think we believe in democracy but there are very different ideas of democracy and in particular there is this sort of tension between the liberal part of liberal democracies and the democratic part of liberal democracies and one way of thinking about that is you know the, the liberal part is a system of individual rights embodied in a constitution and the democratic part is popular sovereignty embodied through elections and there's a there's a tension between those two things that the two things constrain each other right so liberalism constrains democracy and democracy constrains liberalism they're not synonymous even though a lot of people want to use those two terms liberal and democratic as synonymous that they're not synonymous at all and a lot of the discussions that are taking place around threats to democracy are precisely around how liberalism and democracy sort of fit together because especially in Europe one of the things that has happened is the sort of constitutional pillar of democracy in other words the liberal part has become much more dominant over the last 30 40 years um in the European Union in particular we've taken a lot of areas of policy particularly economic policy out of the space of democratic contestation and that's part of what's caused this kind of backlash in Europe um is this sense that actually we've undermined democracy by limiting the scope of what people can decide on in elections so you have this situation where a lot of people feel as if they can vote in elections but their votes don't really matter because they can't change any of the important things so for example in within Europe you can't really change economic policy it was very limited the extent to which you can change economic policy by changing your government because of the way that the european union constrains economic policy through this system of rules so there are very complex debates about what the real threats or threats to democracy are and how you fix those and often the difficult issues are around the relationship between liberalism and democracy rather than you know people who are democrats versus people who oppose democracy it's not really as simple as that And so, according to Hans Kundanani, democracy shouldn't be thought of as an unchangeable truth, but as an eternally malleable political construct. It is a, a process. It, it's constantly evolving. You know, if you think about the way that, for example, you know, suffrage has gradually been expanded, right? It's relatively recently that that women were allowed to vote, and so it's it, you know, it's it's not as if. you know we create democracy and then that's it and then you just have to defend it against threats it's constantly been evolving since democracy sort of reemerged towards the end of the 18th century and so i i do think we've now reached another point where democracy has to evolve further i think that's not the way that a lot of people particularly in the sort of political and foreign policy world in in washington and and in europe see it they do see it as something which basically works and or rather worked until the last few years with the rise of populism and then attempts by China and Russia to interfere in our democracies and they do see it very much as something which just has to be protected against threats particularly external threats and so listening to that discussion 
among foreign policy analysts, you often do get the feeling that they think everything was fine until Trump came along and, and the Chinese and the Russians came along and, and sort of ruined our democracy, hacked it, as you hear some people say. I think that is there's a much deeper set of problems in, in our democracies and, and it is a, a constant evolution. And, and we need to now think about how we take the next step to further deepen our democracy, to make it more responsive to citizens and to make it more democratic in a sense. There's also, it occurs to me, a complication in defining what any kind of alliance of democracy or grouping of democracies would be opposing. You know, the the simple idea of democracy versus authoritarianism becomes complicated, doesn't it? When you see the rise of, as we mentioned before, these illiberal democracies like Poland and Hungary. And this is why specifically the idea of a summit for democracy or a summit of democracies is so problematic because, you know, it's very difficult to know who you would invite and who you would not invite, partly because, as you say, there are these cases that sometimes are sort of in the process of morphing into fully authoritarian states. You know, it is very difficult to know where you draw the line. And the biggest democracy in the world, India, is precisely such a a difficult case. Yes, that will be a tricky question. Also for uh, Biden's summit of democracies, do you make a big tent and include also a lot of the more flawed democracies? Or do you exclude them with the possibility that they can be pushed into the arms of China and, and Russia? I think my approach would be relatively big tent of saying the bigger picture here is that you have this sort of authoritarian challenge and particularly uh, emanating from China. So I would say, so yes, there will be a tricky question about do you invite Turkey, do you invite Hungary, do you invite the Philippines in Asia? Again, I think the trade-off is really, will this make democracies stronger together and be able to sort of provide an alternative to terrorism that, that China represents. What you could do would be make a sort of condition for membership that's saying that you, if you actually join in, you actually need to sign up to some pretty stringent criteria and to take some actions also on home ground, which could, I would say, then have some backsliding democracies that either they do this in accordance with their opposition and with their civil society, or they don't, and then they, they basically themselves kind of fall out of the club. That could be one way of trying to solve this conundrum of membership. I think my solution to that would be to say it shouldn't be against anything. The fact that it's quite difficult to define these limits around, you know, where democracy ends and where authoritarianism begins. If you have a coalition of democracies, it shouldn't be against China and Russia, which is largely how it is being seen in in that way. It's largely an attempt to counter Chinese and Russian influence. I don't think it should be against anyone or anything. I I think it should be in favour of democracy. In another era, when our democracy was tested, Franklin Roosevelt reminded us, in America, we do our part. We all do our part. That's all I'm asking, that we do our part, all of us. If we do that, we will meet the center challenge of the age by proving that democracy is durable and strong. Autocrats will not win the future. We will. America will. And the future belongs to America. 
It's sometimes hard when listening to the rhetoric of American politics to get past the idea that many Americans think they invented democracy, or that, at the very least, they've long been the great beacon of democracy. But the American political system has been greatly tested in recent years, as we all know. So, going back to the question I posed at the beginning of this program, is the United States, under Joe Biden, actually capable of effectively leading a future global alliance? Thomas Graham again. From the very beginning, the United States has been a country that thought that it had an obligation to spread democracy. And the issue before the American public was how do you do that? And there were two competing approaches. One was that the United States should be what we call the shining city on the hill. That is, the United States should build the model democracy, show that it can be successful and prosperous, in that way attract other countries to adopt democratic principles. The other is, is what we call the missionary approach, and that is that the United States had an obligation to go out in the world and spread the principles of democracies, democratic values, and through that make the world a better place. For most of the first hundred years or so of American independence, the focus was on the shining hill. And that missionary approach and this idea that the United States had a responsibility to help build that type of international organization, that type of international system, really took place and became a centerpiece of American diplomacy at the end of the Second World War. It's interesting that this idea of American exceptionalism of the United States as this exemplar of democratic rule or a missionary in, in the advancement of a democracy worldwide first became questioned, and I think in a serious way, after Vietnam in the United States, where many commentators were making the argument that the United States is not exceptional. It acts on the world stage, much like other great powers have in the past, that there are elements of hypocrisy and cynicism in the American approach. And therefore, we need to rethink the way we present ourselves in the world. Nevertheless, every president since the Vietnam War, with the exclusion of Donald Trump, did continue this tradition, spreading democracy, the United States as a leader of the free world, the United States as the indispensable nation for bringing about peace and security in the post-Cold War world, and so forth. So again, Joe Biden is in that tradition, despite the, I think, the controversy swirling around the idea of American exceptionalism, not so much in the United States itself, certainly on the global stage. Given that so many Republicans in the United States still refuse to accept that Joe Biden won the election, doesn't that bring a credibility problem for the United States in moving forward in trying to build this kind of alliance? Absolutely. And look, I mean, there are numerous questions about the future of the United States that need to be asked and need to be answered in some way. You know, the European leaders, our allies in East Asia, uh, have welcomed Joe Biden uh, after the four disruptive years of President Donald Trump. But one of the fundamental questions that everyone is asking is who's the aberration, Trump or Biden? What's going to happen in 2024? Former President Trump has not faded away, as many had hoped. He's still toying with the idea of running again in 2024. Even if he doesn't, it's quite likely that the Republican nominee will be someone who will pursue a foreign policy quite similar to Donald Trump's, with a rhetoric that is similar to Donald Trump's. So the fears, I think, and concerns are very real. They're not exaggerated. And for the United States and for President Biden, 
to have any success in pushing this idea of a community of democracies, he's going to have to make the world feel much more comfortable, much more confident that Donald Trump was the aberration, that the United States is going to be, become and remain a stable and predictable democratic country over the long term. My own view is that in the current period, I think the president needs to think not in smaller terms, but in much more pragmatic terms. The president would be wise to start with a much less ambitious agenda, not gathering a community of democracies, but trying to work with some key democratic allies to try to defend democracy in the areas where it has taken root. And given the very real domestic problems in the United States, the deep polarization, the political dysfunction, the first task of a president is interested in advancing democracy worldwide is healing the United States and putting the United States on a firmer democratic foundation. Perspectives on a new alliance for democracy. We heard today from Thomas Graham, Hans Kundanani, Jonas Perello plesner and Susanna Patton. You've been listening to Future Tense, this episode produced by Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.